0: How important is worship? How important is what we're doing here right now? So how would you explain it to friends or family who are not worshiping? It's a gorgeous day outside. There are lots of things that you could be doing this morning. Lots of activities you could be participating in outside of here. And it controls half your weekend, doesn't it? To plan to be at your church on a Sunday morning. So there are those, you know, other positive options that you can think about for, you know, the important, when you think about the importance of worship. There are these other attractive things that you could be doing. But then there's also the issue of, for some of us, life is a wreck right now. There's a lot going on. It seems like there is crisis that comes around us from, from all sides, So how do we take time out of those crises to come here and to do this, to draw our attention to something else? How do we describe the importance of worship? How important is this? So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it to Revelation chapter 14. And I'm going to start by just explaining the context of all of this. So the beginning of this chapter opens like the scene before a war. At the end of chapter 13, we heard about two beasts who were making war on the earth, especially against God's people. And keep in mind, Revelation is giving us a heavenly vision of earthly events. So Aubrey at Incarnation has Been describing this as like a comic book version of reality. We have to be careful here though, because the images are intensified not to distort reality in the sense of a a comic book way, but in this case to expose reality, to shed light on it. Because we all know when you're living in the midst of circumstances, when you're living down in the weeds, it can be hard for us to see things as they really are. A relationship, a job. Any situation, when you're up close to it, it can become obscured. So, Revelation is an unveiling of reality, a reminder that true evil still exists around us right now. Now, these two beasts are nations who have become absolutely corrupt. And this is what you do when you become corrupt you turn on those who are not corrupt. When you're guilty, when we're guilty, it's terrible to have people standing around you who aren't guilty, making you feel more guilty. You feel it closer. And so you lash out. This is what these two nations have started to do to Christians. This is what Babylon did to ancient Israel in the Old Testament. This is what the book of Daniel is about. And that's why Babylon is mentioned in our passage today, because ancient Rome and Israel had become modern Babylons, modern oppressors. So the beasts are coming. They're coming from one side. Picture, uh, you know, a battlefield. The beasts are on one side. They're coming against God's people. And John looks to the other side, and what does he see? He sees Mount Zion, the mountain of God. And there on the mountain is the Lamb. But not just the Lamb. The Lamb's army is there with them. 144,000. And what is the Lamb's army doing when John looks to see They're singing. This is chapter 14, verse 3. They were singing a new song before the throne. Now, we don't hear the words of the song until the end of our passage. This is chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O oh Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The Christians of this time in which Revelation is written were literally in a war. This is what Revelation is exposing for them. You are in a war, but they're saying. This is what John's saying. This is what you're going to do when the beasts come against you. You're going to sing. They're worshiping. Why is it? When the world is falling apart, don't we feel there are more important things to do? So years ago, in the middle of World War II, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay entitled, Learning During Wartime. Learning During Wartime. So think about the situation. Britain, where C.S. Lewis lived and worked, was being pummeled by air raids repeat. The world as everyone knew it was dancing on this precipice. It could fall to the side of the axis of evil or to that of the allied forces. But from day to day, people did not know to which side it was going to fall. What should people be doing during this time? If you're not fighting on the front lines, what should you be doing? Lewis is defending learning as one necessity. But it's hard to justify this. There are people giving their lives. Why why is learning the essential, an essential thing to do? Lewis said the world has never lacked reasons to put things off until a crisis is averted. The The world has never been without reason to put things off until a crisis is averted. There's always a war. There's always an injustice nearby and important work that needs to be done. But humanity long ago chose to neglect those reasons. So in Lewis's words, we want knowledge and beauty now, and we won't wait for the suitable moment that never comes. So what Lewis was essentially saying is that humans aren't made to put everything on hold while a crisis is going on. We're not made for that. That in itself will drive you mad. There's always a crisis. Now, Christians continually face this question regarding worship. Aren't there more pressing things? Where we live, worship has become just one more optional extra for our lives, another choice to make during our week, just like we're, what we're going to do with our whole weekend. And then the crises in our lives hit. Of all times, how can we worship then? You know what the decision really comes down to is, the question I asked at the How important is worship? So I want to draw out three basic ideas about worship in our passage today. First, I've already hinted at this, but worship is warfare. Worship is warfare. The 144,000 are lining up for battle. They are those who follow the Lamb. And the beasts, these corrupt nations, are coming after the Lamb, which means they're coming after his people, his followers. This is how Revelation is describing an earthly reality that involves people just like you and me. It's describing an earthly reality in these dramatic, intensified ways. And Revelation is telling us that there are only two sides in the world. There is the side of the beast of evil, and then there's the side of the lamb. Now, surely we might want to contend that reality isn't quite this bad. We know lots of people who seem to exist in this sort of middle ground, not necessarily following Jesus, but neither are they outrightly following a beast or following Satan. Isn't it possible for people to live in, say, a, a neutral territory? Revelation says adamantly, no. And if you try to be neutral, at some point you end up being co-opted by the enemy's plans. Like swimming in the ocean, if you don't outrightly resist the tide of the beast and go with the lamb, the beast is going to take you out with him. And in case you want to resist, because this is what the Bible says, it's actually not just the Bible that says this. And so in 2005, David Foster Wallace, he was a writer who is now deceased, he gave what some have described as the greatest commencement address in history. He said in this address that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Wallace, though he wasn't a Christian, and Christians would have a bone to pick with some things I'm about to quote of his, he said this, if you do not worship some God, be it Jesus or Allah, follow some set of ethical principles, pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. So he says, if you worship money and material things, you'll never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, he says, and you'll actually feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, I definitely don't agree with Wallace that you can worship just any god, but Wallace does make at least one point that Revelation does. Everyone worships. The only choice you get is who or what you worship. And as un- Revelation unveils our world, it shows that these two sides, the side of the lamb and the side of evil, of the beast, these are the choices that you have. <laughs> the side of the lamb, or the side of the beast. It shows us that we have one side or the other to choose from. To be on the side of the lamb is to commit our lives to Jesus. The lamb whose love has gone beyond our sin, beyond death, and the grave. To commit our lives to the Lamb is to renounce our rights over our own lives and give ourselves to him. To follow him wherever he goes is the way that the passage puts it. But to side with the beast can look lots of different ways. It could mean just trying to ride the tide through life, trying to pick that neutral territory. But eventually you discover you've just chosen the beast in a different route by choosing yourself. Or it could mean that you live in active rebellion against Jesus. You reject his love and his care over your life. And you decisively turn away from him. So... Where are you with this? If worship is a war, where are you? What side are you on? Are you riding the tide or are you siding with the Lamb in full-out worship and devotion? Worship is warfare. This is why these Christians sing as they prepare for battle. Because this is the way to engage. Now, second, worship is identity to whom do you belong? To whom do you belong? To yourself or to another? You see, the the number 144,000, do you know where this comes from? This comes from the square of 12, 12 being the number of the tribes of Israel. So this is certainly not a a literal number. It's not a limiting number as if there can only be 144,000. It's a symbolic number for the fullness of God's people. We're told that the lamb's name and his father's name are written on each of their foreheads. This is a contrast to those who follow the beast. Did you hear what they have on them? Those who follow the beast receive a mark of the beast. But they don't receive a name. Think about this. It's depersonalized. If you follow the beast, if you live for anything besides the lamb, it turns out to be dehumanizing. You become anonymous within a large crowd of people who have the same exact mark. But no name. It's like having the same iPhone as everybody else. You're just anonymous. You have what everybody else has. But in the kingdom of God, you receive His name, the name of the Lamb, and the Father's name on your person. This is what happens to a Christian in baptism. You receive the sign of the cross, and a new identity is spoken over you. You are my beloved child. In you, I take great delight. As we heard from the passage that Genevieve read to us in Zephaniah, the Father rejoices over you with loud singing. Worship is identity. This is what parents have to learn to do over and over with our children, to sign them with the sign of the cross and remind them to whom they belong. This is what spouses and friends should do to each other. There, there are times when I'm really down, and what I need Katie to do as a spouse, as a partner with me, what I will need some of you to do is to come to me to sign me with the sign of the cross and say, Kevin, you belong to God. You're not your own. This is what we need from each other. One of our most important jobs in each other's lives is to remind each other of our identity. To whom we belong. Now, earlier in Revelation, we heard that those who follow God also receive a new name that only they and God know. It's between them and God. It's this very personal and intimate detail Known, given by the Father, and known between them and the Father only. Do you see what's happening here? In worship, you are personally identified and known by God, loved by God. The 144,000 are those who who belong to him. And they sing in worship because of what God has done in making them his. This is why they'll follow the lamb wherever he goes. Because he has loved them. Now, in chapter 14, verse 4, we're told that these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God in the world. Now, the language of being redeemed comes from the slave market of the ancient world, it meant to purchase the rights of another human being. So, this is when slavery was widespread. And you go to a slave market, you buy someone, you're redeeming them. It means you own them, you have the rights over their life. But in Christianity, this word is transformed to mean that Christ was generous enough to give his life for your life, to redeem you. He shed his blood to purchase your freedom from slavery, Now, this is why we're told in chapter 15 that they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Because Moses' song was sung in response to God's redemption of Israel through the Exodus. Remember, they come through the Red Sea. Egypt is chasing after them. But then the sea closes in on the Egyptians. And what do they do? They sing and worship to God who has redeemed them. But now, through the Lamb... He has delivered us through a, to, from another slavery. So now we're to merge the songs of Moses and the Lamb into one. We are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, set free to worship. No longer to live for ourselves alone, but to live for Christ. Worship is identity. Do you want to know who you are and to whom you belong? Then worship And this is how you'll find out who you are. But we should also say it the other way around. Because if you want to lose your sense of who you are, uh, which I don't think any of us do, but the way to do that is to stop worshiping. To allow our worship to be diminished. We begin to lose our identity. We begin to forget who we are. But the problem here, again, is that we will wander around looking for some identity, some mark to mark us, some place to fit. Now, worship is warfare. It's identity. And lastly, worship is courageous sacrifice. Worship is courageous sacrifice. There's a surprise twist. To this army. They're a martyr army. They're a martyr army. What does this mean? We're told in verse 4 that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Well, where does the lamb go? Think about this. Where does the lamb go? He goes to be sacrificed. This is where this lamb goes. He gives his life willingly for the life of the world. This is how the Lamb brings redemption into our broken world of selfish greed, where worship of money, sex, and power dominate. He lays down his life. He stops the cycle of power and idolatry, of violence. And this is what the Lamb's army does before the beast. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not becoming a doormat kind of thing giving up of your life. It's actually the opposite of that. It's laying down your life by courageously resisting sin and evil, courageously loving and forgiving enemies, courageously caring for the poor and vulnerable, courageously living the truth in a world of lies. Did you hear that part about these 144,000? There was no lie found in their mouth. Their whole life was one of integrity and truth in a world full of lies. You know, we're told uh, from history that many of the early Christian martyrs would go to their deaths singing. Singing and worship to God. This is the opposite of becoming a doormat. It's courageous sacrifice. Following and worshiping the lamb is a courageous sacrifice of our lives to come here this morning. To sing, to listen to the scriptures, and commit our lives to the way of Jesus means we're willing to go out into the world and to renounce ourselves in order to serve God. We're willing to give up our own way and trust in God that he will return our lives to us much better than we could have built our lives ourselves. Again, putting it the other way around, Without worship, we will lack courage to follow Jesus. To resist evil, to love our enemies, and to live the truth in a world of lies requires great courage. And the way to get that courage is through worship. So in chapter 14, verse 20, do you remember this part of the passage where Zan talked about the blood flowing up to a horse's bridle? Oh, goodness, that just sticks with you, doesn't it? What can this mean? We're told that the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed. This is strange and it's confusing until we remember this. Outside of the city is where Jesus died. Outside of the city is where Jesus died. Jesus was an outcast, a convicted criminal. And, you know, death, that's not a clean thing. And so instead of killing him in the city, they take him outside of the city gates. It symbolizes Jesus just being completely outcast and rejected among the people. So he dies away from the city. His blood flows, just like we hear in this passage. His blood flows. But to Christians, here's the term. Jesus' blood is wine that we drink in remembrance of the forgiveness that he gives to us. Now remember, this is a wine press that we hear about here. The wine is being pressed out, but it comes out as blood. What's going on here? Revelation is so symbolic, so we have to take things apart. Jesus' blood flowed, and it becomes wine that we drink in remembrance of his forgiveness. But here, the army that follows the lamb is being crushed by the beast. But because they've been receiving Jesus' blood in wine in Eucharist, they have been transformed into Eucharist, and now their blood flows. (coughs) They're being treated like Jesus, as outcasts. But in the same way that Jesus' blood flows and actually in this reversal gives life to the world, when we sacrifice our lives for Jesus, God brings life to the world. When we willingly sacrifice our lives for Jesus, God brings a new life to the world. When we love our enemies, when we forgive people who've done us wrong, when we go out of our way to care for the poor and the vulnerable, God brings life to the your suffering, when you follow the Lamb, is part of the way God is working in you and in the world to bring his love to bear. Now, suffering can look lots of different ways. It can be financial, <coughs> because of some lifestyle that you choose in order to follow God. A lifestyle of simplicity, so that you can carry out a life of simple devotion to God. For teenagers or singles, your suffering can be social because you choose to live a life of purity and holiness. And that sometimes leaves you feeling isolated. The sufferings that come our way in following Jesus are limitless. They're physical, emotional, they're mental, they're spiritual. Sometimes it's an illness that we have in this broken world. And to follow the Lamb in doing that means that we feel the pain of death. We must know that we don't suffer alone. We're following the Lamb who has gone before us in this suffering. So, back to the beginning. How important is worship? What we're doing here this morning? Worship is warfare, worship is identity, worship is courageous sacrifice. We give our lives here. Trusting that God will return our lives back to us better than we could have built them ourselves. This is why we cannot afford to put worship on par with anything else in our lives. Work, recreation, or any crisis for that matter. Because worship actually defines everything else we do. Without it, we lose the Lord. Without worship, we lose our identity. And without worship, we lose the courage we need to follow the Lamb in the way of sacrificial love and the Word. So, without worship, life will eat us alive. This is why we worship Christ. This is why we do what we're doing here this morning, singing to Christ, to the Father, and to the Spirit. This is the most important possible thing we could be doing right now. In doing this, we're given the music that we need to sustain life and even to sustain death.